Hello, everyone. Welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. Hey, this is Ryan Parker. We are so glad to have you along with us as uh, we are a couple theology nerds who talk about excellent TV shows, storytelling, script writing, character development, and uh, right now we are deep into Rectify. This is episode 203, the third episode of the second season. And uh, Ryan, you want to give us a little thumbnail sketch of what happens in this episode? Yeah, we see a fully functioning, well, I should probably say fully functioning, Daniel, he's dealing with some lingering pain from the beat beating he took, and um, he's at home washing windows, he sees a tree fall, a tree limb fall across the street, he's going to tr- eventually try to help his neighbor move that, and he overexerts himself. We see John Stern back in Oklahoma. Um conversing with his death row client probably come back talk about that yeah probably the biggest element in this a uh, couple things essentially daniel refuses to press charges against bobby dean and the other gentleman uh, and more exactly you know he says more specifically he refuses to identify bobby dean as the one of the men who beat him thereby uh securing his release from jail. And we want to talk about that. And then uh, obviously the ongoing tension between Tawny and Teddy Jr. As Teddy Jr. tries to um, shift his, his family's business into rim rentals. I never knew that was a thing. We're seeing quickly that he'll do anything and everything to get this, get this deal done. He'll go behind everybody's back. So yeah, it, it felt like a, Back to kind of season one, kind of a slow burn of an episode. There's not much that yeah. happens, but I think there are two or three things worth us really digging deep into. And I want to know what resonated with you first, Tony, because I have a thing, and I think it may be the same thing, but let's just see what what was what was your ch- major takeaway from this episode? Well, my yeah, that's a good question. My 30,000 foot on this episode, it, it reminded me of the conversation we had with Scott Teams last week, where he told us about, um, they get into the, they got into the writer's room for season two, and they were kind of like, well, plot wise, nothing really happened in season one, so we actually have to advance the plot, <laughs> like, some shit needs to happen now in yeah, these we're, we're, the, the day the day today is not sustainable <laughs> over five seasons yeah. i actually i mean i think you you say it's a slow burn but i actually think like some stuff happens so for instance let's talk about this uh teddy tawny you know we see teddy teddy pops up maybe three or four times throughout the course of this episode he's at the bank and he's really lean. It's a very intense scene where he's leaning in toward this uh, young woman banker and trying to get a loan. And uh, he tries to go talk to Janet about about uh, getting her sign off because we find out that the tire store is owned by Janet, not owned by Teddy Jr. or Teddy Sr. He goes to Tawny. So it, the point is, he kind of pops up these three different ways. He he, he kind of it. I, I thought it was a little bit, what should I, I don't want to say predictable, but it is a way for a TV show 
to move a plot by building tension. It, it, you saw it almost every episode in the Brady Bunch. You know, Greg goes to his dad. His dad says, no, Greg, you can't have the car this weekend. And then Greg's like, I'm going to figure out a way to get a car this weekend. So Teddy is hears that the first. Di- is that the first Brady Bunch reference on um, Killer Serials? Killer Serials. Wow. I can't imagine. That's, way it back. Is. that's, that's going well, way back. Why don't you, I think you should listen back through all of our episodes and figure, <laughs> <laughs> figure it out. But you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a little, um, it, it makes, it, it works. It works, which is why I think they do it. So Teddy gets a no from his dad and then he's going to try every other way. And, and you just can kind of in your own chest, as you watch it, you can feel the tension building in your own chest. Like this is not going to go well for Teddy. Like if, if he puts if he if he uh takes out a second mortgage on his house puts his house up as collateral and then this whole rental rim thing falls through he's going to lose his house and his marriage with Tawny is already on the ropes like you can you know you can just see it and and i thought okay here the writers are trying to move the plot forward at least one of the subplot yeah, and the triangle that this is setting up between Janet, Ted, and Teddy Jr. Because earlier in the episode, you know, Janet lets Ted know that she's ready to rebuild the kitchen. Ted says to her, "It's just not the right time. The business is struggling." Later in the episode, here comes Teddy Jr. behind Ted's back, trying to go to Janet about about his you know desire to shift the business focus. Um. But he can't ultimately say that to her. He can't ultimately um, tell tell her what's going on because you know Daniel and Amantha are having their whole falling out. But I'll tell you this: the whole episode and these these scenes with Teddy Jr. that you're talking about, we got to get Clay Crawford on here. That guy is phenomenal. So good. He is just oh my he's done every episode. It feels like he's just raising the bar every episode. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do want to say that something else, and I, I've, I was watching this episode and thinking like, I have, I'm being totally vindicated because last week, both you and Scott kind of laughed at me when I talked about not liking Amantha. And it's like, dude, nobody likes Amantha, even Janet, even her mother is like, Hey, maybe you should, uh, go back to Atlanta. <laughs> you know? Well, like, I'm, I'm, everyone's I'm gl- sick of Amantha and her. I, like Daniel stands up to her and gets in her face. Um, Janet tells her maybe she needs to leave. She's just a pain in the ass. And and I look, I get it. It you know she she fought like okay. Let me step back and say I think possibly Amantha is an Enneagram eight. She is a challenger. She gets things done. And I know, having been through a big personal trauma and crisis in my own life and dealing with the court system and fighting, 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 and then I remember, like, when I got custody, I felt like that, like, now what am I going to fight for? So much of my life for so long had been defined by that fight for custody. And then when I won custody... I wanted to keep fighting because it was what I was good at and it was how I understood myself, but the fight was over and I had won. 
And I think there's some of that for Amantha. Like Daniel says, what good is it? This is the moral center of this episode, right? Well, Daniel's Tony, like, I want to, yeah. Tony, let's play that exchange yeah. between Amantha and Daniel. And then let's come back to that because that's the point that resonated. This scene is what resonated with me the most. And I think we could yeah. take a little time to unpack that. So let's listen to it first. And then we'll come back and talk about it. Make me understand this on some semi-logical level. If logic is it's not logical. You want to give Bobby Dean a second chance? Is that it? Death by boots. Yes, that's it. I'm sorry. Why, Daniel? Why? What good would it have done, Amanda? For one, Bobby Dean's skeezy ass would be in jail right now. To what end? Do you like these, Father? Uh... Yes, I've always liked those Wedgwood stuffs. He almost killed you, Daniel. It doesn't matter. What doesn't? What would happen next, Samantha? I mean, Bobby would go to prison, his mother would go to visit. And then after that, and, and, and after that, when would it ever end? No, I, I, like, I like this stove. Do you, do you like this stove, Jared? It's okay, I guess. <laughs> You can't let him get away with what he did to you. Who says he's getting away with it? I like this tile, Mother. Ted says we can't afford to have someone do the kitchen right now. Oh, there are other ways, Mother. Hello? You can't... I can, Amantha. Listen to me. I'm done with it. And you don't have to be Bobby, the sheriff, the town. You can all keep playing. I'm done with it. You think they're done with it? You think Roland Folks is done with it? He is going to come after you again and again. And if you don't end up in another hospital bed, you are going to end up in a courtroom. This is not a game, Daniel. Isn't it? You're too sure about things, Amanda. Okay, Tony, what were you going to say about what, what, what about that stood out to you? Well, you know, she wants to keep fighting and she wants justice. And, and, and now I can sympathize with Amantha because I have been in that same boat. She is frustrated with Daniel that he is not going to positively identify Bobby Dean. And as a result, Bobby Dean gets out of jail later in the episode there's another little kind of moral center there he has with the sheriff that we can chat about in a moment but daniel's like what good is it going to do it and she says well he says to her it's all a game she says this isn't just a game right and he says like it isn't are you sure that's all it is yeah yeah are you sure this is not just a game I do understand her desire for justice and she felt like a great injustice was done against her family. She has spent the last what decade fighting that injustice. She has now received a modicum of success and Bobby Dean, you know, we, you and I talked about this at the end of season one that we wondered if Daniel might, not, I don't know, think he had it coming when he got beat in the, um, in the cemetery and might even consider, you know, might think, well, even if I didn't kill Hannah, I deserve the punishment. 
And there's so much deep the theology in that for us, for you and me to think about, because how much of Protestant Christianity, Catholic Christianity for that matter as well, is based on this idea of we must do penance for our sins. I, I just remember, the guilt, just yeah, the guilt factor is just so huge. It's so huge in Christianity. And I remember in seminary when I was learning about Martin Luther, who was uh, a Roman Catholic monk in Wittenberg, Germany, and he was fl- flagellating himself. So he was whipping himself as was the custom of monks in that day. He was flagellating himself to purge himself of sin, you know, to, to, to pay for his sin. He was whipping himself over the back. And it occurred to him that no matter how much he whipped himself, he would never whip himself enough. And he also, this is funny, but he also felt proud of how well he flagellated himself. And then he realized pride is a sin. So even his self-flagellation was causing him deeper and more sin. And this is what ultimately led him on a path toward understanding that Jesus' death is about grace, not about um, necessarily, you know, uh, our own uh, self-flagellation, this kind of thing. And he, he moved away from Catholicism and founded what we know of as Lutheranism and the whole Protestant tradition. All that to say, for Daniel to think, I deserve it. Now, he hasn't said that. You know, I'm reading between the lines. I wonder what you think about that. For him to say, for him to even think, maybe I deserve that beatdown, and therefore I'm going to let Bobby Dean go free. I'm mindful of that, you know, uh, kind of trite phrase. It's not about you, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and all of this, and I don't know if this is exactly where you, where you are with this, but in a past couple of episodes or in a couple of past podcast episodes, we've talked about the cosmic nature of this series, the way it points to these kind of ancient ideas. We've talked about scapegoat, you know, you've talked about last week, I think you talked about, uh, Satan, right. As the, the tormentor. And I thought a little bit about that again this with this episode because earlier in the film, Hollis tells John it's fun to pretend because John says to him, you know, why did you keep saying that it wasn't your DNA when you knew it was? And obviously there's parallels between that case and what's going on with Daniel and his release from prison and potentially where a, his case would go if it's retried. And then and then Daniel says this thing to Amanda, um, uh, to, I'm sorry, to Amantha about it all being a game. And it, I still don't know quite what to make of that other than I feel like it's something because it's not the first time in the series that the writers have nodded to a, a larger system at work. And obviously these days when we're recording this, we're talking about systemic racism and, and problems and in, in our justice system and all these things. And I wonder if it's not a nod to these characters are so entrenched in a specific type of legal and cultural system that until it is completely overthrown or remodeled, this is how their lives will go. Right? Like Daniel 
you know, because Daniel says to Amantha, where where will it end? Yeah. And and maybe Daniel's refusal to get back at Bobby Dean, right, to press charges to identify him, maybe is Daniel's attempt to break that system. Now, it will require much work from Bobby Dean, as you've already hinted at, when the sheriff lets him out, you know, he asks him, is your life worth saving? Mm-hmm. And he says to him, in some cultures, you would be bound to Daniel, right? Because Daniel basically saved your life. And then what does Bobby Dean say? Not in this one. Not in this one, right? <laughs> so yeah. I'm really, I'm really, I know you and I have, have, have taken slightly different approaches to to this series, or at least are enthusiastic about it in different ways. But not in such a, not explicitly, um, I think the series is interested in systems, and I would say cultural systems, right? I would say even theological or spiritual constructs, the way in which we live in those, right? Willingly and unwillingly, and I don't know. It'd just be interesting to see what happens based on Daniel's decision not to participate in that process. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, any other series would be like, yeah, all right, Bobby Dean, throw him in jail. Right. I don't know if I don't know what you make well, of that, but I just I'm really intrigued by this idea of something larger at work. I mean, Amantha, I, you know, again, I'm sympathizing with Amantha after being pretty tough on her in previous episodes. Because there's got to be something in her that because her brother has been released after 18 years for her to think, well, the system does work because I fought and fought and he got out. So now I have some faith in the system. So let's let the system work for Bobby Dean. And Daniel, of course, what we've seen from all of the prison flashbacks he including in you know including in this episode where he's getting stitched up you know like a nurse at the prison hospital kind of recommends to him that he should ask for a painkiller you know that he doesn't think the system works even though he's been released he knows the system doesn't work and there may be within the system There may be um, little moments of grace or little people like Kerwin or like that guy who's stitching him up. Interestingly, both African-American men um, are, you know, the, the, the two characters in the prison so far who've shown him some compassion and grace and even a little bit of love. But he doesn't think the system in general works. So, yes, I think you're exactly right. He is kind of just deciding to put i don't know you might say like put put a stick in the spokes of the of the bicycle and just stop the whole thing like he's not going to see Bobby Dean go to go to prison for felony assault for 5 to 10 years which is looked like what Bobby Dean was facing he's just going to yeah. step out of that system he's going to break the cycle and not and not out of any benefit like oh uh, Bobby Dean's gonna forgive me and be sweet to me now because I'm showing him some grace. It really has nothing to do with that. It just 
is more about Daniel's own cynicism about the system. Like it will never end. It's just violence on violence, which is again, my, you know, if I had not already expounded upon it at length in a previous episode here, I would talk about the scapegoating mechanism of Rene Girard because it's that very kind of thing. It's, it's just like this, this cycle of violence that perpetuates itself until somebody, and you know, in Gerard's case, Jesus on the cross, breaks that cycle by showing the bankruptcy of that ongoing system of violence. Well, I, I really appreciate you bringing that back up because I feel like, and we've heard this from both uh, Johnny Ray Gill, we've heard this from Michael and Graham, we've heard this from Scott Teams, uh, in their praise for this series and for what Ray McKinnon had created and, and, and that they all were able to pr- participate in is once again, the, this, a series like this capturing the complexity of life, critiquing in a very thoughtful way, these systems that you're talking about. And in this, in the moment, I think in which we find ourselves when in, in our public discourse so much of that is happening you know i think then the onus is on content creators so again i'm saying it will be interesting to see how uh the rest of the characters respond to daniel's decision not to do this whether that's a continuing thread throughout this series where the rest of the series goes over three three more seasons it's one thing to critique this these systems which Many content creators are are good at right. Many writers and, and yeah. filmmakers, and, and I think of Ava DuVernay, and first and foremost is uh, uh, recently. But it's quite another thing to say. How do we then imagine what life looks like on the other side of that critique? That's what I'll be interested to see if Rectify goes there. Um, I think the onus is on storytellers these days to imagine that. I think it's on people of faith theologians to speak into that um, based on based on our vision of of justice and 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 peace and these things right that are that we carry with us from our tradition so that'll that'll be what i'm i'm excited to see in the next in the next few episodes that are closer to this this decision to break that system potentially right that you're talking about is is daniel consciously thinking that way and I think he is. I think you're right to bring that up. I think Dan, when Daniel says, you know, we we know what he knows about the system because we've seen those in the dream sequences and flashbacks. And I think it's right to say that he he's thinking, I'm not going to put Bobby Dean through that. Yeah. Now, what do you make of Sheriff Daggett using that opportunity in jail to uh, give a little lecture about, you know, basically what are you going to do with your life? Well, I, I loved it. I thought, you know, early, we talked about this last week because, you know, we talked a little bit before Scott came on that for, for me, the hot, one of the highlights of that episode or the stars that episode was the sheriff, right? Because he didn't give up on his investigation, even though it would cost him his potentially cost him his job, put him in some harm's way in that community. But he, because in the first season, we look at Carl or, or Sheriff Daggett as, you know, he's threatening. He is resentful of Daniel's release. 
all these things because it's going to bring now, because it's because it's going to bring trouble to his town and make his job harder. Yeah, and also but also maybe because he feels like Daniel deserves to rot in jail, right? And to be on yeah. death row. Right. And maybe he's a little too much like the people that wish Daniel harm. But that has completely changed in season two and even more so in this episode, because if we talk about somebody like you say, throwing, you know, uh, a wrench into the machine, right, of the system and stopping it, this has had, it seems to have had a deep impact on the sheriff. Because I, who would have ever predicted his interaction with Bobby Dean this way, trying to call to some higher moral ground? I think we see an immediate impact of Daniel's decision on somebody like the sheriff to say, "You, wow, this is this is an opportunity for you to change, as opposed mm-hmm. to just keeping you locked up." Now, whether again, back to that, back to this idea of personal responsibility. Now it's on Bobby Dean to embrace that gift and be better. And uh, we can't say if that's going to happen or not. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how much of a role Bobby Dean even has. In this, I, I think it's safe to say that, you know, the sheriff is going to have a big role as we go forward. Okay, I want to contrast that, though, with one more thing I'd like us to cover. And you've already mentioned it, but it's John Stern on death row with Hollis in Oklahoma, another one of his uh, clients. And if we've got, you know, if we've got this set piece of with the sheriff and Bobby Dean, you've got, you know, the good guy on one side of the prison bars and the bad guy on the other side. And and there's kind of a, a little bit of a sermon there from the, the sheriff to the prisoner. Uh, John Stern has a very different posture as, as he has, you know, watches Hollis, his client, eat his last meal, which is five orders of hash browns. Yes. Oh, I got really hungry watching that. I know. So on some Waffle House. And some biscuits and some yeah. Wait, you put chocolate chips on waffles? Yeah. Um this is interesting Ryan because Hollis kind of gives John Stern a bit of a lecture. First of all, I will say this and kudos to Luke Kirby and I do hope we can get him on. I think we might have a, a an in to get him on the show. I'd love to get him on. He looks so tired and bedraggled and just exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously this has taken almost everything out of him. And he goes, he brings Hollis uh, the last meal. Nobody else is going to be with Hollis. And he basically asks Hollis, like, why did you do it? Why? You knew it was your DNA. Why did you mislead me? Your mom? all these other people, do you know how much money we spent on your defense? And all the while you knew that it it was your DNA and Hollis response is like, well, it was my, it was the only shot I had. Like can't, couldn't hurt. Yeah. And then Hollis basically has like a moment and looks at John Stern and kind of takes a, a bit of a breath and actually, maybe why don't we listen to that? What Hollis says to John Stern right now? You a priest now, something? Looking for a deathbed confession? Why'd you keep saying it wasn't your DNA? I don't know. Same 
I'm my only option, Gage. But it wasn't an option. It was your DNA and you knew it. Not my best laid plan, Johnny. I'll give you that. Do you know how much money we spent? How many people believed in you? Your, your mother, your sister, us? Yeah, I feel bad about that now. Do you? Not really, to be honest. It's the first thing you said that I believe, Hollis. Okay, Mr. Stern. A little parting gift. I'm wired different, John. Have been as long as I can remember. Who knows why? Daddy left, Mama crazy, got dropped on my head, none of the above. Doesn't really matter, does it? Just is. So it's fun to pretend, you know? Pretend I was normal. Have y'all treat me like I was human, like I was something other than the monster they say I am. That shit gets old. Anyhow, it's fun to pretend. Simple as that. Okay, so Ryan Hollis basically says, I'm not like other people. I'm a monster. I've known it since I was a kid. And uh, I've quit trying to be like other people. Like, almost like he's a pure evil, he's, he's almost Satan, you know, he is a tormentor. But here's what I wonder, is he teaching John Stern something? And is he potentially putting a splinter of doubt into John Stern's head about Daniel's innocence? Does John Stern yeah. going to go back to Georgia and think, I got hoodwinked by Hollis in Oklahoma now I'm skeptical of Daniel uh, and, and his defense. I absolutely think we're, we are going to see ripples from, you know, Scott talked about Daniel's release from prison being an earthquake. And uh, the first season was in the midst of the quake. And then now we're seeing the aftershocks. I think if you even, if you drill down a little bit deeper, I think this is a, a pebble and a lake this interaction between Hollis and John. And I think it's going to ripple out to mm. your point. And, and a lot of credit to Dan Hildebrand who played Hollis. What a, what a, a great oh, yeah. guest performance there. Um, he's obviously done some other stuff, game of Thrones and things like that. But um, I just thought he was so effective. And yeah, I think that's a, that's an ongoing conversation for us in terms of monster. Yeah. And, is, is anyone born that way? Do they become that way? And he even acknowledges that, right? He was like, bad father, bad mother was gone, whatever. You know, he comes up with all these stand, like these kind of usual uh, common explanations for why people do bad things. And he's just simply like, no, nah, I was just a bad seed, you know. And I wonder if that is such a huge theological, spiritual yeah. thing to unpack that I think we can... We're not going to answer it here, but, you know, in the time remaining, but I think it's something for us to consider. And I think if your hunch is right about how John is shaped by this, that's something we can keep talking about in the weeks ahead for sure. Yeah. 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 And I do just want to acknowledge that I think this is the first writer credit 
for Coleman Herbert on on Rectify. I think okay. earlier he was the story editor, but you and I have a um, you know we met and sat in a writer's room with Coleman. He was a senior writer at the Path, and what a gifted writer he is. Yeah, um, absolutely. Great, great job on this episode, and I think he gets a bunch more writers' credits. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to Killer Serials. Yeah. We like, really appreciate you. Share, you know the yeah, usual drill. Do all those things, and we will see you next week for Rectify Two Hundred Four. Thanks a lot. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>